0: Good morning, Coach Stacy. Good morning, man. This is good. We texted last night and uh, I said, Hey, man, you want to come on the podcast? And you said, Yeah, man, let's do it. Let's get it, man. It's, we should start calling these like coffee with Coach Stacy. Oh, yeah, man. I like that.
1: It's always good to get up on these mornings, have some good conversation to start your day.
0: Yeah, it really is. And you know, I, I think as teachers, I know for me, I, I need something before the day starts because of my day starts at 7 30 with the students I feel like I'm all kinds of jacked up what do you think about that
1: yeah for sure um you know a long time ago I used to be one of those guys that always ran before school Mm -hmm. uh you know that was always kind of my little piece in the day you know kind of get my mind rolling for the day and get everything going Mm -hmm. nowadays it might struggle a little bit more to get up but it's always nice when you do
0: yeah when I was Oh gosh, 2013, 2014, I would get up and work out uh with like with the football team. We we had different situation private school. Uh kids didn't have to ride the bus. And we get up like 6 a.m., 6 30 a.m. and get after it. And I don't think I would do that now, even if I could. I don't know. That's just too much. I think a good conversation, coffee is good, but exercise that early just is i'm not even awake you know what i mean it's like what the heck's going on
1: yeah it's kind of like dragging yourself through purgatory there for a minute kind Mm. of just out there for like that first 30 minutes not really awake it's kind of vibing it's finally like hey you know yeah but one thing i always liked about especially running in the mornings was you know watching the world wake up too yeah that's true You know, I used to love Sunday long runs with my high school coach, waking up on some early, early Sunday mornings while everybody's just barely flicking the lights on, getting ready for church. You know, we're out there probably on like mile seven or eight. There's always just kind of a different perspective.
0: Yeah, I I ran through a part of Jacksonville called San Marco when I first got into teaching. And it was cool to see the people rolling to Starbucks at – six whatever in the morning i thought to myself i bet those people are pretty successful if they're up this early and, and getting after it do you do you think getting up early helps people be successful because i've had people you know, you'll hear people talk like jocko willink he shows his watch on his social media posts at 4 a.m i don't i don't know what to think about that i really don't yeah
1: there's like the extreme side of it like guys like him i know who you're talking about i've watched a few of his uh interviews and stuff some of his videos up on youtube a few times Uh, I definitely think there's a fine balance you know there's kind of like waking up at a good time you know get yourself productive making sure you're like making the use out of the most time of your day and I mean I was definitely one of those people I like to sleep in for the longest time I mean especially once I got out of college Mm -hmm. you know when I was still just a substitute teacher you know if I wasn't working or whatever I didn't find much reason to get up in the mornings but you know even nowadays I mean just get up early makes me feel like I'm actually using my time a lot better, even if I don't really get much done in the morning. Yeah. I feel like it just puts me in a better mindset to kind of conquer the day.
0: Yeah, I think too, with me, it makes me go to bed earlier. That I'm not wasting time, you know, reading something or watching YouTube or, and it, I'm, I feel like, oh, okay, I'll go to bed when I need to go to bed and then get up and do something worthwhile. Like right. doing this, you know? And because I, I mean, back when I had a smartphone, I just scroll and then you're scrolling, you're scrolling. Oh my gosh, it's midnight. What about, you know, like, what am I been doing? I need to go to bed.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that because like literally not last night, but the night before. I mean, I just kind of been real busy the past few days kind of since last uh, Friday, I've been waking up real early getting some stuff done. Hmm. And then, you know, having track meet on Tuesday, I was kind of exhausted these past couple of days. And, I mean, I was laying in bed there about 10 o'clock, like, and my body's sitting there screaming at me, go to sleep, mm. you know, and that thumbs, well, just, just keep mm. going, mm-hmm. just keep going. As if yeah. I wanted to find, like, the Holy Grail or something
0: on Twitter at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, I think endless scroll is, like, one of the worst things ever invented. When, I think the, per- and I was reading something, the person that invented endless scroll basically said i have damaged the human race (laughs) because like you know you just go and go and go and go and go and our brains just not really wired for that i don't think
1: you know where they got the inspiration for scrolling on social media
0: no i have no idea casinos slot machines oh pulling the lever explain that go through that a little bit yeah so like you
1: know like with the slot machine you pull the lever and you watch all the little crazy images flash across the screen and Mm -hmm. then just you know, that's why slot machines are addictive. It's fun to watch. Yeah. Twitter, literally the reason why you scroll and when you get to the top, you pull down with your thumb and it does that little refresh thing is meant to mirror that same exact feeling oh, of gosh. pulling down on a slot machine. Gee, and that's yes. what and that's a big part of what makes it so addictive, you know, and you'll find yourself. And I know I especially like 2 a.m. I know ain't no one tweeting at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's asleep. Mm-hmm. But I still have that instinct to, you know, hop back on there and still pull it down, pull it down, pull it down. Mm-hmm. It don't matter if nothing new is showing up or what. It's, mm-hmm.
0: it's the feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was a football, football coaching friend of mine saying, hey, man, you need to get back on Twitter. You need to, you know, get back on that stuff. And I said, no. I, one time I had like 2,000 followers. And I would post podcast episodes and football stuff. But I just find myself, I just couldn't control it. I would be at all hours of the day, all hours of the night, mm-hmm. trying to, what's new? What, do I, what am I missing? And yeah, I, my brain just can't handle it. I mean, obviously people's brains can. Mine just can't. I was just yeah. like, this is overload. I, I can't handle this. Uh, yeah, man. Because I, I felt like in one big science experiment, because social media is such a new thing. It's such a, like, we don't know how our brains are going to like evolve, so to speak, because now it's a conversation with like thousands or millions of people instead of like me and you right here, right. Which is what we're like our brain was designed for, you know? Yeah. And
1: that's the thing about social media is it makes you care about things that are so far away. Mm. And I think that's a, I think there's some beauty in that. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, like whenever we got some major issues going on, like right now, like I can watch the Ukraine Russia war literally mm-hmm. unfold through Instagram. Mm-hmm. I can watch a battle literally less than hours after they've taken place. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think it makes us almost overly like caring too much mm-hmm. about things. Like I think we get a little too fired up. And, you know, sometimes you see people all fired up about something mm-hmm. that happens somewhere that has absolutely nothing to do with them. And then I kind of look at the person like, man, why are you so fired up for? Yeah. Why, why are you feeling so passionate about that football team all the way out there in California and how they yeah. handled this particular situation? Like, hey, and you're like, yeah, you want to learn from it? Sure. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the way social media elicits those really emotional responses out of mm-hmm. us is kind of what I think is like. Mm-hmm. It's created a divide almost because, you know, it's almost you stand on one side of the fence or the other. And whereas like, you know, we can sit down and you and I can have conversations and Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier when you and I disagree in person, you know, we can still sit here face to face and, you know, I'm actually confronted with you. I don't have to avoid the person that's actually, you know, behind all that, Mm -hmm. you know, you'll see a tweet or a Facebook post you disagree with. I think sometimes we forget the humanity that's behind it because we're not looking at the person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think the other part of that is we all have a global platform either on a phone or a computer that we could, even if you don't have a social media account, you could create one in 30 seconds and you can post that. That goes out to the world. And I think before social media, before, you know, even the way media is done these days, like you have your own news channel on your web top or, your laptop wow your laptop or your phone but that stuff went through an editor years ago like it had to go through somebody or you had to get to the point in your career where you actually had like a a valid standing and a valid opinion Mm -hmm. to get there and now it's just anybody can throw i think this and what like you know what i mean what
1: expertise do you have on that
0: how much zero yeah. yeah how much
1: did you study that all right. Oh, you saw that one Facebook post from that one person. Oh, okay. I got you. Got you.
0: Oh, the conspiracy theories that have been launched because of Facebook. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I saw it on Facebook. Oh, no. that's like the press pause. <laughs> like, let's not go down there. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And we hear that in our classrooms, too. You hear kids, you teach history. I would love to get into this. I mean, how much of that do you hear in your class? Like you're talking about history and somebody says, oh, I saw this on Facebook or some, some random website.
1: Yeah. I mean, all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and you can almost always tell, I mean, you know, I'm on Facebook too. I see those same articles that Mm -hmm. come out, you know, and you know, what's well, I know, you know, I like to think I know when something's real or something's not right. And you know, and you can hear a kid reiterate something, and I'm just like, ah, where'd you read that at? Yeah. Well, I saw it on Facebook. Right. Ah, okay, Bob, did you read any articles about it, or did you just read Drunkle's Facebook post, which is it?
0: Right. Yeah. And us as adults, I think we can weed through that, or we mm-hmm. should be able to. I, I think the, the teenage mind, because there's been some legislation in the, uh, Congress about social media and you know, how it affects teenagers and what can the, what can Congress do to help mitigate some of that? Because the teenage brain, I mean, they're just taking in everything. Full force. It's a sponge. And there's so much misinformation out there. And then the social media companies know like, hey, if I make this addictive, then they'll stay on it and, you know, all that, they'll make more money and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of interesting we're having this
1: conversation right now because, you know, like earlier this week, my phone broke uh, mm-hmm. there on yeah. Monday morning. And, it, you know, it was a wild day for me. I mean, I absolutely mm-hmm. panicked. Like, you know, I had a track meet the next day on Tuesday. I got to get information out to parents. I'm sitting there scrambling like, man, what am I going to do? What if they have questions, how am I going to answer them? But even worse, I went home that evening and when I, you know, got everything else taken care of I needed to, had my assistant coaches you know, relay all the information I needed. I sit around the house and I'm like, what do I do? Hmm. And I sit there and thought about it like, well, what am I typically doing when I'm sitting here? Mm-hmm. And I thought about it. Oh, I'm sitting here watching YouTube, scrolling through something. right? And then it felt so weird because I, and instinctively, phone still broke. I still keep picking it up as if like something's going to happen mm. as if somehow, some way I was going to be able to like get back in like mm-hmm. the social media. And then I was just kind of realizing like, man, that's pretty lame of me. And well, I started finding myself. So like literally Monday night, I'm like washing dishes, doing laundry, uh-huh. like, you know, trying to find something else to occupy my time. Cause then I was just sitting there on the couch. Like, man, what do I typically
0: do? Yeah. It's, I mean, we the, the the smartphone the technology is so new. I mean, look historically speaking, and it's I mean it's made to be addictive, right? It is made. I think the modern life. I was reading some reading some something or watching something. Somebody said this. The modern life is based off addiction. Mm-hmm. So, like your phone, my coffee, uh, the computer, uh, the shows we watch. I mean, it's built on people in advertising and people who make shows, people understand like how your brain works. So you know, you're you looking for dopamine highs and those types of things. And now I was reading something else. It was talking about how boredom is actually a really good thing for your brain. It lets your brain reset. And today, like today daydream is a good thing because it's, you can, your brain like puts things back in order or reorders. And uh, like our first podcast, you talked about going on a long run and your brain has time to like reset, and refresh. Right. And I feel, I know for me, I can, even though I don't have a smartphone, I can still get on my computer or, or iPad and I'm just mindlessly looking for, where's a video, where's an article. Cause I think I'm, a, I think I'm afraid of boredom. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's some of it too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, one of the most interesting things about social media and I think, especially how it's affected our kids is, I don't ever walk into a classroom anymore before class starts and have to tell kids to quiet down. You watch after these past few years of the pandemic. What do you see every time you walk in your classroom when class starts? Staring at their phone or the iPad they have from school. They don't even conversate with each other. It's, I genuinely believe, you know, Mm -hmm. social media has made people so comfortable in their own little safe and secure part of their world you know in that world is strictly tied to that phone and you know they're afraid yeah. to even talk to each other and i mean i remember last year and last year was crazy between the you know we were virtual then we weren't and everything else and then when we came back mm-hmm. i remember walking into a classroom with like 30 kids and not a single one of them was saying a word. and i looked at them all and i was like hey before we start class i want you all to start talking to each other so put your phones away yeah. start having some conversation yeah i was like it I ain't going to sit here yell at you. I want to hear you talk because mm-hmm. watching y'all stare at those phones and y'all come in here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, that worries
0: me a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. I would say my underclassmen are more talkative. That's just cause that's just how they are to some degree right there. Yes. The ninth graders, my, my phrase for ninth graders is they don't even know that they don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's yeah. just like complete. Like I don't even, they don't even know what they don't know about school i'm not saying life i'm just saying high school they haven't learned how to do school at the high school level yet and neither did i when i was that age right nope none of us did but yeah and i think some of that too is you getting you can get in your own echo chamber just on your device and there it is i I only listen to the opinions i want to hear i mean i'm guilty of that um it's partly why i listen to npr on the way to school because i like to hear a multitude of uh, opinions. And, you know, I'll read like Drudge Report and then I'll listen to NPR and try to get, you know, both sides to, to some issues and what's really going on. You think we're scared of confrontation? Oh, yeah. I think... What what is What's that song that... What's that line that Drake has in one of his songs talking about like Twitter fingers or like Trigger. turn to finger turn to trigger fingers yeah. or trigger fingers, turn to Twitter fingers, something there, like that. There you go. And I mean, I see I see a a counselor once a week for like trying to become a better, better man, understand myself more and learning how to, you know, you look at confrontation. What is confrontation? How do you manage anger and anxiety? So like how do we manage that successfully and to be able to like sit with it? I think most people are not most people. I know I am. I can't speak for anybody else. I get really uncomfortable when like anger is high and anxiety is high, mm-hmm. and it's. And I think it's, that's a tolerance thing. I think we can do it. I can do it. I just have to get used to. It's okay to feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes us avoid, or it
1: makes us avoid those uncomfortable conversations.
0: Mm. Mm. And that was something
1: I felt like I was a lot better at it as a younger age. Was I liked things that were uncomfortable. You know, I like things that challenged me and pushed me out of my, like, typical, uh, you know, just out of my typical zone of where my comfort was. And I just feel like, as you're saying, with, like, all those echo chambers and stuff, you know, like, we know opposing opinions are out there, but, you know, we don't even give them the time of day. Uh, You know, I think we're really lacking on empathy, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to actually see something from someone else's perspective. Like, hey, you ain't got to feel bad for them. Try to put yourself in their shoes and And that's what especially I love about my job in history is, you know, Mm -hmm. we get to have Mm -hmm. differing opinions, we can go and talk about, uh, you know, everything that was happening in the Cold War, and everything else and the JFK assassination, and we can offer differing opinions. But what I always encourage my kids is like, hey, you don't have to agree with someone, no one in here will ever tell you that. Mm -hmm. But what I will ask of you is when Mm -hmm. someone's given a different opinion, listen to understand first, don't listen Mm -hmm. to respond. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, the discourse and I mean, you could put it at any level, but, you know, I think the discourse in our society is really falling off. And I mean, if the 2020 election wasn't a perfect example of that or the 2016 election, I mean, or any of like Mm -hmm. the recent stuff that's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we actually listen to one another to actually understand what they're saying and where they're coming from. We don't stop to question. Well, why does that person feel that way? What, in their, what happened in their life to lead them to this point? Hmm. And instead, we only listen to respond.
0: Yeah, and we only we respond. I know I have been guilty of responding in the length. I respond, my response is the length of a social media post. Mm-hmm. Be, because in reality, it's far more nuanced than that. Uh, I remember Joe Rogan was talking about he would love to ha- love to have had the like a presidential debate on his podcast because the debate shouldn't just be an hour long or whatever it is, maybe two hours. It should be like four hours right. of this legit conversation going through the actual details of policy. But that's, I feel like our attention spans are really short, and so if people, it'd be hard to pay attention to that because. I mean, Twitter posts aren't going to help solve the United States, United States issues, right? It's going to be like actual policy and how is this implemented and have to go through all the the checks and balances and all that stuff. Yeah. And that's what's so crazy is, you know, we take a 140 character
1: tweet and we put it under such a giant microscope. And all of a sudden, those few words become so much more than what they are. And I mean, regardless of what people felt with Trump and his Twitter, like, you know, but you saw how the world reacted to it. The man could send one tweet and it was every headline every single day. And it was just like, man, is this really something that we got to sit here and blow up on a mic, like on a major platform every single time or?
0: Yeah, I I have. I mean, I think obviously people have the freedom to express themselves. This is the United States, including the president. But I think that, nuance is what's missing mm-hmm. the the long form conversation of well how does this play out what, what how does this how do we actually do this And uh, in whatever you know event that is or whatever political idea right how do we actually pull this off <laughs> because that that's where the rubber meets the road you know yeah for sure yeah and like you were talking about teaching history, <clears throat> when I walked in your room for lunch, this is a couple maybe last week or something. You were talking about JFK. Who killed JFK, man? For real, like what is going down? You know what I mean? Seriously, right. like, I would love your two cents. Obviously, this is not a professional. I mean, coach is a professional. This is not like a we're demanding evidence or anything. What do you think about about that? <sighs> to me, it comes down
1: to. Probably had some mafia ties, but I do. I was watching a video over, uh, over spring break here. and It was about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's actually last phone call he tried to make in the jail. Mm. And there's a quote uh, just that a senator had once made about Lee Harvey Oswald. And he's like, you know, did Lee Harvey Oswald work for the CIA or the FBI like that? We don't know. But what we do know is he had the fingerprints of intelligence all over him.
0: Oh wow! And what was
1: really interesting is what they call the Raleigh phone call it was like that very last phone call he tried to make. They didn't actually let him make that phone call. They played it off as if they put the phone call through and as if some, like it, just no one on the other end answered. And so it was just a wash. In reality, two men, unidentified men, came in that night and told the two jail clerks who were working the case, who were working, supposed to put the phone through like told them a heads up of, Hey, he's going to try to play this phone call. You're going to act as if you put it through. You're going to tell them no one picked it up. They supervised to watch the women do that. Tell Lee Harvey Oswald, no one picked up. The Harvey Oswald gets escorted back to his jail cell. And those two men leave. The mm. yeah, guy He was trying to call at one point was a world war II veteran had worked with intelligence in the United States army. Mm. And then another, it was either a CIA or an FBI agent. Like, you know, this had been under such a, everybody's looked at this really close, like experts for years have tried to figure out, man, why did he try to call this guy? And I believe his name was like George D. Hurt or something. Oh. And an FBI agent or a CIA, like I believe, yeah, someone from the FBI was like, oh yeah, that's very typical. Yeah, that's perfect standard protocol. He's calling his handler. Oh, okay. Whenever you're in trouble, if you're an FBI agent, you have someone that you're meant to call. Now, whether or not that man was actually Lee Harvey Oswald's handler right. or if he was led to believe uh, that that was his handler. Uh, so kind of he was maybe led to believe that mm-hmm. he was working for the government and doing this on behalf of him. know, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that's just – there ain't no way it was just one man. That yeah, I, I feel man. like that's where I stand the,
0: the most. yeah. It's, it's yeah. Just, I read the book called Killing Kennedy by Bill O'Reilly mm-hmm. and he doesn't emphatically say it was this person or that person or this organization probably because he gets sued. <laughs> he mm-hmm. did in Right. Book, right. Uh, but man, it's such a, I mean, that happened how many years ago now? That's what 60 years ago. Yep. Yeah, uh, right about yeah coming up next year will be 60 years and like it's still such a mystery and it's interesting how certain events in our our history draw still draw so much attention because people well, one because people don't believe the conclusion they don't they think ah, i don't think that what you're telling me is uh is factual because when you look at those files are still so redacted it's like black line black line and black lines <laughs> the <laughs> you're like what exactly. in the world like you know uh if, if you wanted to stop people's, you know, guessing about it, you just open it up, you know? Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the
1: sixties, I mean, the sixties were a wild time and yeah. you want to talk about like when some of the federal agencies like had more power than what they had ever had prior to that point in the U S history, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about the U two incident where, you know, we get a spy plane shot down over Russia during the cold war when, you know, Eisenhower's president, and then, you know, you take a look at Kennedy, you know, what was Kennedy trying to do? Like, he was trying to hold back the CIA. He was holding them on a leash a little bit. And I mean, did the 60s overall. And like, that's what we're in right now in my class. You know, talk, we just now broke into the civil rights movement. You know, there's some really crazy things that went on in the 60s. JFK gets assassinated in 63, mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy gets assassinated in 67, mm-hmm. MLK gets assassinated in 68. Malcolm X gets assassinated mm-hmm. in between there as well. Yeah.
0: Like yeah. You were talking about too in our, our our lunch get together with the the lunch crew how it's you can't really do that anymore because of the way the media is and how <laughs> I mean, people have phones. They can just take a video. Like, this is mm-hmm. what's going on. And people are far more likely to leak because there's more protection. Yeah, comment on that a little bit. So, like, how did – did the, the I, if I could talk this morning? Did technology change that? Like, what, what has changed? Because I don't think the government's like that anymore. Maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: You know, that's kind of the point I've been making to my students so much recently. You know, we're so luck- – what if Abraham Zapruder didn't have that film? What if he did not have that camera? Mm. We would never have this discussion no one would ever con- like yeah. i mean you probably would have people like oh well, are you know questioning some things but mm. well, what would you have had your basis off of the pruder film it's like a what a, like 20 some second film
0: yeah. you know
1: only a few hundred frames yeah if we don't have that do we even have the same conversations that we have surrounding it?
0: no because the narrative can be shaped by whoever has whoever has the most power and that's who shapes the narrative usually mm-hmm. is the winner or the person with the power can say this is what happened but the victor gets to tell history yeah but today and even not today but when the venture of cameras right and there's more federal protection for people and state protection and you can tell your own story i mean what do you think about like history books What is, like, history textbooks, what is your, what is your thought on, like, how much do you spend in your textbook versus other sources, I guess would be my, my question.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, when it comes to, like, presenting and stuff, you know, like, if we're lecturing or stuff, like, do I use the resources from the textbook? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, you know, I'll use the PowerPoint or something that accompanies whatever we're talking about. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, I mean, but my always, my perspective is always create your own opinion. Mm. You. And that's what I loved about my college history professors was they really taught us how to analyze like historical events through a particular lens like of detecting the bias and as you said like the winner gets to tell history. Yeah, you know, even though this may be the story that we've always been told and I mean you could use any example that you want you could talk about us and the Nazis in World War II. you could talk about the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, you know what really happened. So long as the winner is going to tell that story, you have to be able to detect those like inherent bias, like regardless of even if an author thinks that they're leaving out their own bias, like Mm -hmm. still somewhere in there, there has to be some bias. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, especially from the history perspective, you have to step outside of your comfort zone. You have Mm -hmm. to look for things to challenge you. If I only look for things that completely agree with what I'm saying, and that kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have a full perspective on it. You know, if I only want to look at the JFK assassination from the perspective of, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald being a possible compromised agent for the the KGB over because he wanted to defect to the Soviet, Soviet Union, you know, then that's what I'm going to be led to believe. But, you know, I have to make that conscious effort to go and pursue opinions that make me think differently. And that's what and I think that's where this is all coming back together. Is yes, we're not willing to go and pursue those opinions anymore. We're not. We're afraid to pursue the things
0: that make us uncomfortable. And I think some of it, too. That's awesome, Coach. That's so good. You wrapped it all up. Uh, well, not wrapped up, just brought it back. I think we we have our books, and we say my book is right, and my interpretation of the book is right, whether that's book being air quotes, right? So my interpretation of the data of the event, right? So we see that with religious wars. We see that with, you know, the Bible's right. My interpretation of the Bible's right. So that's how how I see. And I say wars, I mean like culture wars too, right? So you have like my reading of the Bible is this, mine's this. And both are claiming (laughs) that I'm just, believing what the Bible says. And I'm like, uh, no, you believe what you're, the bias. And bias Mm -hmm. is not a negative term. Like we all have biases. Me and you could see the same thing. And Coach Stacy sees this and I see this. And that's fine because we're human beings and same thing with history. And it's just interesting how like the news cycle feeds on that now. Like MSNBC and Fox News report the same story but both have completely different takes. And I think that's so interesting because back in the 60s, 70s, whenever news started, that wasn't the case. It was, here's the facts. You can kind of decide what you want. It wasn't like an opinion piece, you know what I mean? Yeah. A big part of like all that's kind of why in college
1: I found myself getting into a lot of like skepticism philosophy, philosophy mm. is, you know, it just made me listen to other people more. Like, and what I mean by that is, you know, there's an, uh, I believe an ancient Greek philosopher, his name was Pyrrho. If anyone's ever read uh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World or any of his works, you know, that's where he got a lot of his inspiration from of like, of how he lived his life, you know, was viewing everything as if everyone was correct. That, you know, Zach Davis, (sighs) everything that you're coming to today, everything that you believe, everything that you think is true, you, you're probably justified in believing that based on your experiences. I don't know every last minute of your life. I don't know every last thing that's ever happened to you. And every last thing that happens to us, every experience that we have, is what helps shape our viewpoint on the world. Mm. And you know, with skepticism, it kind of just got me to understand like, I may not agree with that person and I may not like what they're saying. Mm. But I'm sure in their mind, they have a very just reason Mm -hmm. for feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And that's where I've always tried to understand people. And I felt like I especially was very lucky to gather my perspective. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I got to visit a lot of countries in Europe. I got to get outside of the United States quite a few times. I mean, dude, I even went to Africa, right in the middle of Swaziland, Africa. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you want to talk about an experience at 17, 18 years old, Mm -hmm. And I feel like for me personally, that's why I've always been okay with looking at other perspectives, because I've seen other cultures. I've Mm -hmm. seen what the world is like Mm -hmm. outside of these borders. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, you can see that here in the United States, too. I can go from West Virginia and go over to California, and I know it's a completely different world. (laughs) You know, my brother's living out there right now, and, you know. Going out and visiting him or talking about like, you know, just seeing what life's like out there. You know, even my wife and I went to Colorado. I and mean, you can just tell, like, you know, the culture's so different. Yeah. And I think that's just such the to me, that's beautiful mm-hmm. that the world is so different, but yet so inherently the same at the same time. Mm-hmm. We're all we're all these different people, we're all living these different lives, different things are happening to us every day. We all have different experiences. Mm-hmm. But somehow it all comes back to being one big common shared experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where we lose lose each other on is we only focus so much on our personal experiences. And we think that, that
0: our experience has to apply to everyone else. And it just doesn't. Yeah, anecdotal stories don't tell the story of humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, my this happened to me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's happened to millions of people too. You yeah, know, it's not right. unique to... My story. Have you ever heard of the Enneagram? No. Oh, man. Talk to me about it. So it's like numbers one through nine, it's different personality types.
1: Okay. Yeah. 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 All right.
0: And I definitely think everybody falls into one of those. And my wife got into it big time. And I'm a three. And that's, yeah, there's, it's really cool. Like if, and to go research what you're like. And when you read the description, you, I know I say to myself how I I said to myself, how do they know me? You know what I mean? And, uh, like the desert Fathers, So like the, you know, the desert fathers out of like somewhat orthodoxy early Catholicism, uh, came up with this to help people in like in counseling sessions. So to understand their personality. And I think people fall into one of those nine. So when I meet somebody now I'm like going through my brain (laughs) Which and you're not supposed one. to type people, but it does help you to understand where they're coming, from. where they're coming from, because that's just the way they're wired. Like it, you can't change the way you're wired; you're mm-hmm. going to be that. And that's mm-hmm. one thing about the enneagram. Like I'm a three, I, you're you're never going to change that. But it's how do you become a healthy version of what you are, right? Uh, because people say, "I want to change my personality." I want to. That's nah, no. Like it, you're it about to lose have... a battle, right? <laughs> it, yeah.
1: And like, that's the thing, you know, I wish I could, I wish I'd be a lot more slow to anger. I wish I would be yeah. a lot more patient. Mm-hmm. That's just not me. Right. You know, I, and, and, to me, all that comes in because I'm usually so passionate and so mm-hmm. emotional in my responses to things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people are like, man, you care too much. And I was like, well, you know, and that's how I've always been. Like, and, right. I, and I don't necessarily care to change that. Like, mm-hmm. can I absolutely work on bettering those things? Can I work on being more patient and being slow to anger and being more understanding? Absolutely. But at the same part, that's what, that's who makes Taylor who he is. And that's, yep. and, and I'm okay with that,
0: that that's going to be me. And our culture today, I think our culture fears anger. So if somebody, and I say anger, I say even being like passionate about something, mm-hmm. it's, oh, you're making me uncomfortable. Well, that's, that's a human emotion, a very valid human emotion. And we should be passionate about things. So, you know, why do people get uncomfortable? And I think people get uncomfortable when it's not their opinion, though. If it's not my opinion, if somebody is fired up about it, that makes me uncomfortable. Well, yeah, but that's okay. They should be passionate about what they believe in. Yeah, I mean,
1: if you look back to our experiences earlier this season during, uh, you know, your football season, my (laughs) cross-country season, uh, you know, having to go inside a few times because of some lightning and some other things. And I think you saw me after about the third time, you know. I wasn't angry at our our people trying to protect us, but I think. Yeah, I yeah. think you saw the passion of like, yeah. hey, and I think I made some people feel a little pretty awkward, but yeah. that wasn't because I was angry at them, but it's because, hey, I love my kids. I want the best for them. I'm yeah. passionate about them and I want to see them succeed. And, you know, our time is valuable. Absolutely. And I think that's really when you and I kind of first got our little like, ah,
0: we're a lot of Yeah, we are. Yeah. Uh... I can be Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I'm really working on being like a more balanced version of that. Uh, But at the same time, like you were saying, when I think that you're shorting somebody in experience, or this is not according to policy, or it's not the best way to do something, I think that that should elicit a response. Because for coaches and educators, we should stand up for our people. You know, what our our players, our our students, if they're in the right and we need to help them become better, well, we need the tools necessary to to do that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Coach, thank you for coming and talking this morning. Oh, man,
1: always, man. I can wake up for this just about any time.
0: This has been fun.
1: Uh, We'll definitely do another one. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure, man. Appreciate you.